Good morning. In today's headlines, the U.S. hit a weapons storage facility in eastern Syria with an airstrike yesterday. Another message to Iranian-backed terrorist groups attacking U.S. facilities and personnel. Heated moments from last night's third GOP primary debate. Hear why 2024 candidates think GOP voters should choose them instead of Trump. And takeaways from the former president's rally in Miami with analysis from an expert. A new bill proposed by two House Republicans, it would limit foreign influence on university and college campuses, as well as monetary injections to educational facilities. Hunter Biden and James Biden subpoenaed. The House Oversight Committee wants President Biden's family members to testify about their business dealings. A win for former President Trump in Minnesota, he can appear on the primary ballot after a challenge. Some analysis on the chance of a similar attempt in the general election. The Actors Union struck a tentative deal with major studios ending the months-long strike. We bring on the host of NTD Business to give us the details of what this means. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning for me as well. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Thursday, November 9th. Yes, almost Friday. And we've seen almost Trump Friday. make the, the most out of those private events during these debates. Yeah, it was a lot happening last night too. Well, it, bringing out thousands to a rally, that's yeah. just miles away from the debate. That and after that interview with Tucker, that got a lot of views. Mm, certainly a strategy. Uh, well, five Republican presidential hopefuls duked it out at the third GOP 2024 debate in Miami last night. Candidates made their case to GOP voters on why they should be nominated instead of former President Trump. The debate in Florida took aim at foreign policy and other pressing topics hot on people's minds. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy came out swinging at RNC chair Ronna McDaniel and NBC, the hosts of the debate. The GOP firebrand called for accountability from the network for past reporting and said if the debate was hosted by Elon Musk, Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson, it would get 10 times the viewership. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley got into a bit of a scrum with him over TikTok in China. At one point, the crowd started chanting Trump and the producer nicely asked them to stop. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more takeaways on what the five candidates had to say. 2024 presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis called out former President Trump in his appeal for the GOP nomination. He owes it to you to be on this stage and explain why he should get another chance. He should explain why he didn't have Mexico pay for the border wall. He should explain why he racked up so much debt. He should explain why he didn't drain the swamp. And he said Republicans were going to get tired of winning. Well, we saw last night, I'm sick of Republicans losing. Frustration shared by 2024 hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy, taking aim at the RNC chair for a losing track record since 2018, and NBC the host of the debate. You think the Democrats, I and mean, we've got Kristen Welker here, you think the Democrats would actually hire Greg Gutfeld to host a Democratic debate? Candidates were asked how, as president, they would respond to the Israel-Hamas war. I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers Hamas. 2024 contender Chris Christie says as president, he would prioritize intelligence to avoid further terrorist attacks. Israel and their intelligence community failed. They failed here and they failed the people of the state of Israel. And so we need to work closely and better together. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley says the issue needs to be addressed at its root. The former ambassador to the UN says terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah are only a threat because of Iran and its allies. And who is funding Iran right now? China is buying oil from Iran. Russia is getting drones and missiles from Iran. And there is an unholy alliance. We need to be clear-eyed. The last thing we need to do is to tell Israel what to do. The only thing we should be doing is supporting them and eliminating Hamas. An assessment supported by Senator Tim Scott. If you want to stop the 40-plus attacks on military personnel in the Middle East, you have to strike in Iran. If you want to make a difference, you cannot just continue to have strikes in Syria on warehouses. You actually have to cut off the head of the snake. DeSantis and Haley at one point sparred over how to best deal with the Chinese regime and other foreign threats to the U.S. 
we will go and end all for formal trade relations with China until they stop murdering Americans from fentanyl, something Ron has yet to say that he's going to do. And then we modernize our military. When we strengthen our military, when we modernize it with the focus of cyber, artificial intelligence, and space, when we make sure that we have the backs of our friends, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in Ukraine, and we should be arming Taiwan. In Florida, I banned China from buying land in this state, and we kicked out on our universities, and we kicked the Confucius Institutes out of our universities. We've recognized the threat, and we've acted swiftly and decisively. Haley and Ramaswamy continued their grudge match over TikTok and China. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters propping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just the easy scum. answer is actually to say that we're just going to ban one app. GOP voters in Iowa weighed in after the debate. Calm, controlled, and informative. Uh, character counts over name calling and four out of five of people on the stage I could see being in the White House. Foreign policy takes center stage. GOP stands in solidarity and in support of Israel. A much more civil debate tonight. Trump won another one. The fourth GOP primary debate is set for December 6 in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. So let's hear more about the debate last night. We're bringing in Raven Harrison. She's a political strategist and former congressional candidate. Good morning, Raven. It's good to see you. Now, uh, I want to start with this. The evening started out with a question on former President Trump. And we just heard um, this gentleman saying Trump wanted another one. So there were jabs, though, and Trump himself held a big event in Hialeah. So how did he came out of this? He came out the winner, hands down, Evelyn. I mean, the problem is, is that you know, we've seen this. This is the third debate. This is the third one where President Trump was absent and his numbers are 10 times higher than the candidates vying for attention on there. So I think it was a it was a great strategy, but they're still going to make the emphasis on Trump, whether he's in person or not. So what about those that were there? So because many saying Haley won this debate, what do you think? Uh, as a strategist, I was watching the debate and I disagree. I do not think Haley won the debate. I think that Vivek Ramaswamy absolutely just savaged the field. He came with specific barbs. He talked about Nikki Haley's daughter being on TikTok, but she's saying she's going to ban it. Talked about the absence of, of a plan to secure our southern border, but you want to send uh, more money. And the, the most ruthless of it was talking about how she was almost had zero net worth or was almost bankrupt before uh, she got into these military contracts. And became a multimillionaire. And as we're in the middle of two wars right now, that was really, really detrimental. So talking about Vivek Ramaswamy, we certainly everyone talking about that moment between Ramaswamy and Haley, some gasps yes. in the audience. And um, he had already announced that he would go into this unconstrained. So you're, do you think it went the way that he was hoping for? Because it seemed like he was just trying, really trying to create these key or viral moments. Well, absolutely. I think from his team and his strategy, they've got to be taking a victory lap because they were able to cast doubt on some really strong platforms. Governor DeSantis is running on the record he has in Florida, but for him to, to question whether or not he really did buy, uh, ban Chinese land sales and for Nikki Haley to question if she's a warmonger and she's you know supporting endless wars that are not benefit financially to the American people was a great strategy. And I think he executed it brilliantly. What about DeSantis here? He was trying to hold on to his position as a runner-up. How did he do? I think that he held his own. I didn't think he lost any ground. I don't really think he gained any ground. I think he should focus more. He's been telling us a lot about his record in Florida, which most people already know. What we need now is the actual verbs and the sentences. How are you going to actually end this war? How are you going to get things back on track? This is their moment to separate themselves from Trump and tell us verbs in the sentences. What are the numbers? What do you intend to do? And not these vague uh, campaign promises. So how specifically do you think they should be handling this with Trump, the absence of him? And because voters really don't like it when they take him on that directly. So how can candidates get ahead in this or how should they handle that? 
is they've got to distinguish themselves if if people either want Trump or they don't want Trump. So if they don't want Trump, we need people who are going to provide a viable option of how you aren't Trump. What are you going to be doing differently for you to say, okay, he ran up the debt. Well, what, what is your plan to reduce the debt? What is your plan to keep us safe? What are your actual specific points? I mean, they couldn't even answer, would you raise the retirement age of social security? And we got these nebulous answers of maybe sort of, what day is it? Oh, is the wind blowing? Hang on. So. We need to kind of get back to what is exactly it. It's time now. We need to know. Third debate. What are you actually going to do? So bottom line, what do you think you will be watching for in the fourth debate? Who has the most work to do now? Is to see as the situation with our economy and the wars in Israel goes on, what are they doing to adapt their strategy to give comfort and relief to the American people that we have a plan that's going to work? That's what they have to do. Every single one. Hmm. All right, thank you so much, Raven Harrison. I really appreciate your time this morning. Good to have you. Former President Donald Trump held a rally yesterday, the same day the Republican presidential candidates had their third debate. To get more details from on the ground, we're bringing in Jack Bradley live from Miami, Florida. Good morning, Jack. There you go. Thank you for joining us this early and getting up early for us. So you were at the Trump rally last night. Tell, what can you tell us? Good morning, guys. Yeah, so I'm here in Miami, Florida, at the uh, Adrian Arch Center, where Republican presidential candidates held their third debate last night. Now, just 11 miles from here in Hialeah, former President Donald Trump held his own rally, and uh, this is the third time he skipped the debates. Now, the former president dominates the GOP field, pulling at over 50 percent, according to Real Clear Politics polling averages. But he's also beating President Biden in five key swing states. Now, that's according to the New York Times Siena College's latest poll. Now, Trump spoke to a very enthusiastic crowd. He said he's the only one to prevent World War III, he's going to stop illegal immigration, and that the wars in Ukraine and Israel would not have happened with, under his watch. Now, let's watch some of that right now. For four straight years under the Trump administration, I kept America safe. I kept Israel safe. I kept Ukraine safe. And I kept the world safe, but we have never been closer to World War III. And only for one reason, we have incompetent people talking on our behalf. Once Biden took over, the terrorists have flooded into our country, and bad things are happening. When you see from China thousands and thousands of young, strong men coming into our country, what's that all about? If you hate America, if you want to abolish Israel, if you sympathize with jihadists, then we don't want you in our country. Every time the radical left Democrats, Marxists, communists, and fascists indict me, they indicted me. Can you believe my? But this is a political indictment. This is a Biden indictment. Even that stupid trial going on in New York. So, Jack, what was the mood like there, and what did you hear from attendees? Well, you know, there were there's a very excited crowd there. Probably 10,000 people were at the rally. And uh, I spoke to some of them, and some of them were there since Monday, just to really excited to get into the rally. And I asked Trump supporters in Hialeah how they see the race. Everyone said that his legal cases, Trump's legal cases, will not affect his candidacy and that they don't need to see him on the debate stage. They say that he has enough uh, support already. Now, I also spoke with Kerry Lake and former Trump advisor, uh, Jason Miller, they were telling me some of the challenges and most important issues Republicans are facing and that Trump is up to the task to address those. Let's take a look at some of those highlights. Republicans are going to have to learn how to talk about abortion. That's just the reality. President Trump has been saying that for months. And I think we saw last night. That's it. But Republicans have to start learning how to talk about it. Otherwise, some of these folks uh, could lose again. We're going to make sure, though, when it comes to ballot integrity, that nothing is going to get by us in 2024. The truth is, President Donald J. Trump has had our back the whole time. He's the one who secured the border. He's the one that gave us the most prosperous economy of my lifetime, and I've been around for a while. He's the one that had us uh, national security solid solid and strong. He had an energy policy that had us energy independent. He's the one that had us on a solid footing on a world stage and was pulling out of these endless wars, never starting a new war, and actually was bringing peace to the Middle East through the Abraham Accords. 
Now, at the end of the debate, uh, at the end of the rally, rather, Trump's top aide told reporters that he will not attend uh, the fourth debate as well next month. Back to you both in New York. Some really good updates. Thank you so much, Jack Bradley. I appreciate it. With us, we're going to break. The U.S. carried out an airstrike on a weapons storage facility in eastern Syria Wednesday. This is the second time the U.S. hit facilities used by Iran-backed groups. A new bill in the House that aims to limit foreign influence on U.S. campuses. Find out what the bill includes and which countries are of concern. Is the rise of anti-Semitism on college campuses fueled by undocumented money from the Middle East? We take a closer look at a new report from a nonprofit research center when we come back. Good to have you back. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. has real concerns over military ties between Russia and North Korea. The top U.S. diplomat called the cooperation a two-way street while in South Korea yesterday. He also thanked leaders there for condemning the brutal October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. Watch. In the Middle East, the United States appreciates Korea's leadership in condemning Hamas's terrorist attacks and in swiftly sending humanitarian assistance to Palestinian civilians. The United States remains clear-eyed and focused on advancing our interests, our values, and our vision of a free and open, prosperous, secure, and resilient region in the Indo-Pacific. Blinken says North Korea has been supplying military equipment to Russia in exchange for technical support to aid military progress. He and other G7 foreign ministers say the arms transfer directly violates UN Security Council resolutions. Blinken and his South Korean counterpart also say they discussed deterrence strategy and countering threats by using U.S. military assets, as well as by improving cooperation with Japan. Blinken is now heading to India to be joined by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. Talks are expected to focus on Indo-Pacific security and concerns over China. The U.S. carried out an airstrike on a weapons storage facility in eastern Syria Wednesday. According to an announcement from the Pentagon, the storage facility was linked to Iranian-backed groups. Two other facilities used by Iranian-backed groups were hit last month. Yesterday's airstrikes follow a month of almost daily attacks by Iranian proxies on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. U.S. officials said yesterday's attack did not result in casualties or any damage to infrastructure. An increase in attacks on U.S. forces in the Middle East has been expected in the wake of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And two House, two House Republicans introduced legislation yesterday they, that would limit foreign interference on U.S. college and university campuses. The bill was introduced by Representatives Virginia Fox and Michelle Steele. It's aimed at bringing more transparency to foreign gift reporting at universities in the U.S. And today's Cost Temines has the story. The proposed bill is titled The Defending Education Transparency and Ending Rogue Regimes Engaging in Nefarious Transactions, or Deterrent Act. According to the bill, it would significantly reduce the foreign gift reporting threshold for educational facilities from $250,000 down to $50,000, as well as close any loopholes in reporting monetary injections, thus providing better transparency. What we know is happening in, in institutions all around the country is that uh, countries like China, Qatar, um, maybe even Iran, we haven't been tracking that as much, um, give money to the universities. And when they do that, we know they're not doing it innocently or for nothing in return. Countries of concern would be subject to a more stringent threshold of zero dollars. Educational facilities are currently required by law to disclose any foreign monetary injections over $250,000. Under the Trump administration, um, the department found out that there were, was almost $7 billion that the Trump administration found uh, money that had been donated to universities that was not reported uh, under a provision of the um, Higher Education Act, which says the institutions are to report these. According to Fox, 
China in particular has been instrumental at trying to infiltrate campuses and influence the thought processes of young impressionable people. We know that the Chinese Communist Party is not giving money to these institutions for nothing. Um, they may be trying to get um, sensitive national security information. They may just be wanting to influence the way students think about the Chinese Communist Party in China. This also applies to Confucius Institutes. We have done everything we can to expose the Confucius Institutes. They claim to be just innocent cultural exchange and cultural education programs, but we know that they were not. Former Missouri State Senator Eric Burleson also weighed in on the proposed legislation. At the end of the day, all we're asking is that we be transparent. Like, the, this bill doesn't stop the, uh, the activity. It's, it just is the first step in making sure that we at least understand the full extent of what's happening. The proposed bill received bipartisan support. The legislation would also hold the U.S.'s largest private institutions accountable by requiring them to disclose any foreign investments or donations that could be of concern. If the bill passes, the facilities would incur fines and other penalties for non-compliance. Cost MNS, NTD News. Could undocumented money from authoritarian regimes in the Middle East be behind the rise of anti-Semitism at U.S. universities? NTD's Daniel Monahan breaks down a new report from a nonprofit research center it examines the extent of such funding and its relationship to the political climate on campuses. The Network Contagion Research Institute published a paper this week titled The Corruption of the American Mind. It summarized four studies that examined how undocumented funding correlated with a worsening of free speech, academic freedom, and anti-Semitism on campus. The paper says universities across the U.S. have received billions of dollars over the last decade from foreign donors that were not reported to the Department of Education as required. Much of this undocumented money was provided by authoritarian regimes. The studies concluded that the money, especially from Middle Eastern sources, reflects or supports heightened levels of intolerance towards Jews, academic freedom, and free speech. According to the paper, over 200 American colleges and universities illegally withheld information on approximately $13 billion in undocumented contributions from foreign governments, many authoritarian. The paper says that campuses receiving undocumented funds exhibited approximately twice as many campaigns to silence academics as those that did not and that students on such campuses reported greater exposure to anti-Semitic rhetoric and more anti-Semitic incidents. According to the paper, anti-Semitism increased when the undocumented donors were from the Middle East. More specifically, institutions that took money from Middle Eastern donors had 300% more anti-Semitic incidents on average than institutions that did not. On free speech, the paper says there were more campaigns to investigate, censor, demote, suspend, or terminate speakers and scholars at universities that received undocumented money from foreign regimes. Cornell, Harvard, and Yale were in the top six of those receiving undocumented foreign money, while Cornell and Harvard were second and third. Qatar was the top donor, giving out nearly $3 billion. China and Saudi Arabia were third and fourth, each giving out over a billion dollars. In an annual college free speech ranking released in September, Harvard had the lowest ranking of all rated universities, while Michigan Technological University had the highest score. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Detroit police have made an arrest in the stabbing death of a synagogue president, Samantha Wool. Wool was found dead outside of her Michigan home last month. Authorities don't believe the crime was motivated by anti-Semitism and are treating it as a domestic dispute. Detroit police haven't identified the suspect and said details of the investigation will remain confidential at this time. Just ahead in New York, Ivanka Trump takes the stand. She says she doesn't remember much about what happened 12 years ago, what was in her emails at the time, and why the New York Attorney General filed a motion in the middle of her testimony.
Trump gets to be on the primary ballot in Minnesota after the state's high court rejected a challenge. We have analysis on a potential appeal and the likelihood of it happening again in the general election. Welcome back. And some good news for former President Trump. He will be on the Minnesota ballot for the GOP primary election. The state Supreme Court is rejecting a challenge based on the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. The amendment blocks officials from holding office again if they engaged in insurrection. But there's little precedent for how it should be applied, especially as Trump hasn't been charged with insurrection. The Minnesota court dismissed the case but said challengers can try again to block Trump from the general election ballot if he does win the nomination, which is looking likely based on recent polling. Now let's get some legal analysis of the Minnesota Supreme Court's decision to keep former President Trump on the primary ballot. Please welcome Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Thanks for getting up early this morning to talk about this, Paul. Yeah. So all this means is that the Minnesota Supreme Court considers Trump eligible to run in the primary, but says nothing about Trump's eligibility for office, right? Well, that's right. And, and, and that's a correct ruling as far as it goes, because uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that uh, a person is not eligible to hold office if they engage in insurrection. As I said uh, before, I believe on your show, uh, the statute does, or the constitutional amendment, does it say about them being uh, on the ballot for any election uh, as opposed to holding office? Uh, and number two, uh, that section doesn't even apply to uh, President Trump uh, by its own terms. So uh, at least they, uh, the court ruled correctly that, wait a minute, uh, you know, this is only for the primary election, so we can't do anything there. And so they did say that they could come back and uh, file again uh, once he gets on the general election ballot. Uh, and as you said, that's likely to happen. Uh, so I expect them to file it again, but I don't see them uh, winning uh, the second time either. So the Minnesota Supreme Court said that there's no error to correct, that the state statute doesn't prevent a candidate who allegedly had any problem with the amendment, the 14th Amendment, to be on the primary nominating ballot. But what about the general election? Would there just be the same situation if these challengers came back and tried the same thing again? Yeah, like I said, uh, uh, once the general election comes around, they could try try uh, filing, refiling their suit. But there's other uh, hurdles uh, before that. And, and uh, they haven't even uh, been able to get to any discovery uh, or proof that he did engage in any insurrection. So uh, th this case has a long way to go, and, and I don't see them winning uh, even if they try to file again. Does the Minnesota Supreme Court ruling foreshadow what may happen in similar challenges in Colorado and Michigan? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it does. Uh, Colorado, as we know, is pending right now. We expect a decision here in another uh, week or two uh, but that one, they actually had a trial as to whether or not Trump engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Uh, so they're farther ahead than uh, Minnesota in terms of uh, getting to the uh, facts of the case. But I see there, too, that that uh, uh, there's still procedural and legal hurdles before them. So I would be looking at the Colorado case to see how that one rules, to see if there's any uh, uh, merit to these other cases. And there are about 20 of them pending around the, uh, around the country. So let's look at this nonpartisan group in Minnesota, the Free Speech for the People, that's the one that's bringing this challenge. Will they appeal, do you expect? And if so, where would that appeal take place? Well, I mean, theoretically, they could uh, try to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but there's no way that the Supreme Court will take the case because there's no conflict uh, among other courts about, about this issue, number one. And number two, the... Uh, reason they court rejected it, saying, look, it's not ripe. Uh, come back uh, when there's a general election and he's kicked off the ballot then. So so th th this is uh, over as far as I can see for this case in the Minnesota uh, courts. So a Trump campaign spokesperson said that this is further validation that Trump's campaign is consistent with the 14th Amendment. And these ballot challenges are nothing more than 
strategic unconstitutional attempts to interfere with the election. Does this case here actually paint that picture? Well, yeah, I mean, all these cases are, are interfering with the election and denying uh, the voters the right to vote for the candidate of their choice. Uh, whether you are supporting Trump or not, you should at least uh, have a right to uh, vote for the right candidate. So all these cases by these left-wing groups are designed to deny the American people the right to vote for the candidate of their choice. Well, now, Paul, you say this is a left leaning group, it's, it seems that it's painting itself as nonpartisan, kind of more in the middle. It did have a challenge with the way that Texas was going about limiting access to mail-in ballots and things like that. But can you explain that a little bit more? Well, uh, yeah, I'm having a little trouble hearing you, but but uh, anyway, yeah, they, they have some Republicans as plaintiffs in this case, but they're, the, of course, the, the never Trumpers. But in any event, uh, this is just Part of a, uh, uh, other cases, not only these cases keep him off the ballot, but the ones we have here in D.C. Uh, and other uh, uh, criminal cases by the special counsel to interfere with the election. So, so there's a lot going on here. And, and uh, by the way, there'll be a hearing on the gag order here in D.C. Uh, on November 20th. And uh, Trump's attorneys last night filed their brief. Uh, in the court, and that shows why that's a First Amendment violation against his rights. Well, a lot of experts are saying this whole 14th Amendment challenge is a long shot to begin with. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Former President Trump's oldest daughter, Ivanka, has testified. She says she doesn't know much about her father's financial statements. Attorney General Letitia James says she does. Entity's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more details. Ivanka Trump quietly arrives at the courthouse, wasting no time to get inside, where she will testify in the civil fraud case brought against her father and two brothers. Attorney General Letitia James, who filed the lawsuit, is not so quiet. Ivanka Trump secured negotiated loans um, to obtain favorable terms based on fraudulent statements of financial condition. Um, and she will attempt today to distance herself from the company. But unfortunately, the facts will reveal that, in fact, that she was very much involved. We uncovered this scheme, um, and she benefited from it personally. No cameras were allowed in the courtroom Wednesday the first time since the trial began. Ivanka is not a defendant in the case, and she didn't want to testify, arguing she would suffer undue hardship by having to travel from her home in Florida in the middle of a school week. But the judge rejected that, and later she dropped her appeal. Ivanka generally says that she knows very little about financial statements that the judge determined fraudulently inflated the value of her father's assets to secure favorable insurance rates and bank loans. On the stand, she often stated, I don't recall, to questions about her father's finances. The AG's attorney showed Ivanka her own email communications with potential lenders for her father's Miami hotel property. The terms required that her father have a net worth of $3 billion. In another email, Ivanka had requested lowering the required net worth to $2.5 billion. Yet, her father's statement showed a net worth of over $4 billion. On cross-examination, the defense tried to establish that Ivanka didn't know much about the financial statements. Ivanka Trump is the AG's last witness, but before her testimony ended, the AG's attorney filed a letter with the judge during the break. They want to block several of the Trump team's witnesses from testifying, arguing that the issues that will be discussed were already resolved by the judge when he ruled the statements were fraudulent. They have requested to be heard on Thursday. A fresh round of subpoenas and the probe into the Biden family's business dealings. The House Oversight Committee issued subpoenas yesterday for the president's brother, James Biden, and Hunter Biden. Committee Chair James Comer signed the subpoenas. He's also seeking interviews with several other Biden family members and associates. That group includes Melissa Cohen, Hunter Biden's wife, and Sarah Biden, who is James Biden's wife. 
Comer said in a statement, the House Oversight Committee has followed the money and built a record of evidence revealing how Joe Biden knew, was involved, and benefited from his family's influence peddling schemes. Financial records obtained and made public by House Republicans show a network of shell companies set up by the Biden family while President Biden was vice president. The records indicate that the family and their companies raked in more than $24 million. In response to the subpoena, the White House has continuously dismissed the investigation and called it baseless. Hunter Biden sued Overstock.com's former CEO Patrick Byrne yesterday. That's over accusations of defamation regarding comments about an alleged bribe from Iran. The lawsuit against Byrne accuses him of publishing false claims about an alleged offer to have President Biden unfreeze $8 billion in Iranian funds. Attorneys for the president's son called the comments defamatory and completely outrageous. The suit says that Byrne resumed the defamatory statements on X last month, one day after Israel was attacked. The lawsuit also says his October post implies that allegedly criminal and corrupt actions of Hunter Biden contributed to the terrorist attacks by Hamas. They accuse Byrne of knowingly publishing and republishing baseless lies to anyone who will listen, including his hundreds of thousands of social media followers. They also say he has ignored their demands to retract and disavow the claims. Coming up, major studios reach an agreement with the union ending the Hollywood actor strikes. We bring on the host of NTD Business to tell us what's next. And the Federal Reserve could be slowing down the trend of rate hikes they've been using to deal with America's inflation problem. We speak to an economist to get us the details. Thanks for staying with us. The Hollywood actors' strike is now over. A tentative deal was reached with major film and television studios. Joining us now to discuss yesterday's announcement from the Actors' Union is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, it's great to have you with us this morning. Can you give us the details of the situation to start? Yeah, of course. Uh, so late last night, uh, the union announced that uh, in a unanimous, unanimous vote, actually, the SAG-AFTRA TV Theatrical Committee approved a tentative agreement uh, with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. And this is bringing an end to the 118-day strike. And the strike officially ended at midnight, uh, according to the union. Um, so the agreement sets the stage for the roughly 160,000 actors uh, represented by SAG-AFTRA to return to work after they walked off the job back in July a couple months ago. Um, of course, uh, this deal is tentative right now, which means uh, the three-year contract uh, must be still approved by votes from the union's board and its members in the coming days. Um, but, you know, at 118 days, uh, it was the longest movie and television strike in the union's 90-year history. So that's a win then for the unions? What is in the deal? Uh, well, the terms of the agreement uh, were not immediately released. SAG-AFTRA said the details would actually be made public after a meeting on Friday. Uh, that's uh, when board members will actually review the contract. But here are just some, uh, some of the issues that were on the table. Uh, it includes things like short-term compensation, uh, future royalty payments for TV and film performances, uh, along with, of course, uh, control over actors' images and likenesses generated with artificial intelligence. That was a big one. Um, but, you know, actors uh, should be able to soon return to movie sets where production uh, were paused. For movies like uh, Deadpool 3, uh, if you're looking forward to that, Gladiator 2, Wicked. Um, but, you know, the agreement also means uh, a return to sets for thousands of film crew members. We don't think about that uh, a lot, uh, who have left uh, with no work to do during the strikes. Yeah, a lot of goes into making those movies, and it's good that their likeness is now protected because those actors, they put a lot of work into that likeness. Years of hard work and training just to perfect that image and, you know, got to get the right haircut, maybe they work out. So, anything else for us, Don? Yeah, sure. Um, Shell uh, Oil filed a lawsuit against Greenpeace asking for over $2 million in damages. This comes after a January incident where Greenpeace boarded a Shell oil production vessel to protest oil drilling. 
shall describe the action as unlawful and extremely dangerous. Shell said uh, they respect the right to protest, of course, but only if done safely and legally. Greenpeace said uh, Shell offered to cut its claims if protests against Shell were halted at sea or port. The organization called the suit one of the biggest legal threats in its 50-year history. And it seems like Republicans are calling for the VA to decrease reliance on China for medical supplies. Uh, this stems from weaknesses in medical supply chains. The situation uh, became clear during the COVID pandemic when there was a shortage of masks and other life-saving gear. Now the chairman of the China Select Committee and the Veterans Affairs Committee are warning the VA. They say it needs to do more to prevent that from happening again. Uh, they wrote to the agency's secretary about the lack of sufficient domestic pr production. Uh, they warned China could exploit that weakness, putting Americans in danger in future emergencies. Um, the VA acknowledged the letter and said they're working to respond. Uh, just those two updates from me this morning. And important ones. Thank you so much, Don Ma, for keeping us up to date. Host of NTD Business. Thank you. And it really does make sense that the VA is calling into question supply chains originating in China because after the pandemic, we saw how N95 masks were at, you know, at a loss. There was a shortage of those because China was deciding how it was going to divvy that up. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, because if the COVID pandemic showed anything, it was that the, the reliance on China is dangerous, to say the least. Yes. So we're going to break now. Oh, uh, before that, um, we have another question to answer here. Is this the end of the rate hike cycle? I spoke with Van Skin, president at Gin Economic Consulting and a former chief econom economist at the White House's Office of Management and Budget to learn more about America's battle with inflation. The Federal Reserve will have one more meeting uh, in December, and we'll see what they do then. But they've been pausing now for two uh, meetings in a row. So it's been since July when they raised their target federal funds rate, their overnight lending rate between banks, to 525 to 5.5%. Um, there's some expectation that they may increase it one more time in December. Uh, but my guess is they'll probably pause. They'll look at what inflation and other things are doing. Um, and But I think we're going to see interest rates higher for longer, given how high inflation remains. Now, what signs will, signs will you be looking for um, if there is to see if maybe anything might change about this outlook? Well, one will be the CPI inflation, the Consumer Price Index, that inflation report that will come out very soon. Um, we'll look and see what that rate is. The last one was around 3.8%, which is double what their inflation rate is uh, by the Federal Reserve of 2%. So we'll see if that remains high or if it starts to come down some more. Um, another indication that I really have been looking at is what the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is. It remains around $8 trillion, which is double what it was before the pandemic in February of 2020. So there's a lot of money, a lot of liquidity that's sloshing around that could continue to increase and create inflationary pressures throughout the economy. People are actually already talking about rate cuts. When do you see that happen? Well, I think that's going to be longer. I mean, I don't see that until at least the early, the late part of 2024, given that inflation remains so high. I do see that we're having some weaknesses in the labor market, as um, if you counted out all of the jobs that were revised down by 101,000 just you know the last couple of months, there were only 49,000 jobs added last month, and so that is showing a lot of weakness in in slowing down of the labor market. I think that's going to continue. And so even if we hit a recession, which I think that we, we will, um, they're going to have a tough time lowering their interest rate because of the inflationary pressures that are out there. And this is a big conundrum. What will the Federal Reserve do that I think we need to keep looking at what the data is showing us and ultimately find ways to make sure that they cut their balance sheet because that is really what will help just, you know, stifle inflation and get us back on a longer run trend of economic growth and prosperity. So just one thing before we go here, because I just heard that you think that we will head into uh, sorry recession. Well, other I hear other um, people still say that maybe it might not necessarily be the case. So so can you um, expand on that, please? Sure. I, I think when you're looking at a lot of these measures and manufacturing, you look at some of the industrial numbers that are coming out, you look at the jobs, the labor market and the jobs report and everything else, um, they're showing a lot of weaknesses that are already happening. And with an interest rates being as high as they are, 5.25 to 5.5%, the 10-year rate being above 5% or right around 5% for the first time in, in, in 16 years, mortgage rates being the highest in over 20 years, this is going to reduce a lot of the demand in the economy, and then, then the supply will fall off as well. 
And that is where we have larger amount of, of, of risks of, of recession, which I think are coming very soon. So while there are some good top line numbers, we got to look under the surface. And this is an overall weak economy. Um, and so that's the reason why I think we'll be in a recession soon. Mm. All right. Thank you so much, Vanskin, for your outlook and for your analysis. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Just ahead is a UN organization stirring up hatred against Israel in Gaza. We bring you shocking allegations from a watchdog group about terrorists coming out of United Nations schools. Welcome back. Shocking accusations made against the United Nations Agency. The organization is allegedly stirring up hatred against Israel and Gaza, starting with children in schools. Entity's Arian Pasdar has highlights from a congressional hearing on Capitol Hill. There needs to be plans for the phasing out of UNRWA over time. UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, front and center at a hearing on Wednesday. There should only be one agency that deals with refugees worldwide. The Palestinian one has failed. UNRWA was founded in 1949 to support Palestinian refugees. Witnesses told the House Foreign Affairs Committee that the agency has been infiltrated, saying that teachers at UNRWA schools in Gaza teach kids anti-Semitic hatred, which has had serious outcomes. Graduates of UNRWA who have committed terrorist attacks, and this is over the past 20 years, and they cite numerous graduates of UNRWA schools who commit terrorist attacks. Witness Jonathan Lincoln, who worked with the UN for 15 years, agreed in part, saying teachers at those UN schools should be replaced. Now, UNRWA, of course, is just one of many agencies belonging to the United Nations. But witnesses at Wednesday's hearing didn't just talk about UNRWA. They cited some concerning numbers regarding the UN's handling of Israel. For example, the executive director of UN Watch says that the UN promises equal rights to countries but is treating autocracies like China better than Israel. Take a look. Never does the UN blame Hamas for launching the war, for embedding themselves inside hospitals, homes, schools, and mosques. At the UN General Assembly last year, there was one resolution on Iran, one on Syria, one on North Korea, and 15 on Israel. Zero resolutions were adopted on China, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, and 180 other countries. Jonathan Lincoln said that although not perfect, UNRWA is still very important for Gaza calling it the only agency that can guarantee necessary aid to refugees in Gaza at this point in time. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. It'll be interesting to learn more about UN's response to that and what could be done even if there are real credible concerns there. Mm, that's right. And it's interesting because they said UN did not blame Hamas, but yet Hamas was blaming UN, remember, for, for the Palestinians and um, suffering from the war because apparently it's their responsibility to take care of these people. Right. Well, the second part of our broadcast starts now. Former President Trump holds a rally near Miami during the Republican debate. Is he having success winning over Hispanic voters in the state? A reporter who was on site gives us an update. Heated moments from last night's third GOP primary debate. Hear why 2024 candidates think GOP voters should opt for them instead of Trump. And NTD asks U.S. Senate candidate Carrie Lake and former Trump advisor Jason Miller for their thoughts on important voter issues. Billions of taxpayer dollars spent on global LGBT initiatives. We take a look at a recent investigation that reveals the types of programs funded. Welcome back. And to those of you just joining us, good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning from me as well. I'm Evelyn Lee. Let's get right into our top stories. Five Republican presidential hopefuls duked out at the third GOP 2024 debate in Miami last night. Candidates made their case to GOP voters on why they should be nominated instead of former President Trump. The debate took place in Florida and at, aimed at foreign policy and other pressing topics hot on people's minds. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy came out swinging at RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel and NBC, the hosts of the debate. 
The GOP firebrand called for accountability from the network for past reporting and said if the debate was hosted by Elon Musk, Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson, it would get 10 times the viewership. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley got into a bit of a scrum with him over TikTok and China. At one point, the crowd started chanting Trump and the producer nicely asked them to stop. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more takeaways on what the five candidates had to say. 2024 presidential candidate and Florida governor Ron DeSantis called out former President Trump in his appeal for the GOP nomination. He owes it to you to be on this stage and explain why he should get another chance. He should explain why he didn't have Mexico pay for the border wall. He should explain why he racked up so much debt. He should explain why he didn't drain the swamp. And he said Republicans were going to get tired of winning. Well, we saw last night, I'm sick of Republicans losing. Frustration shared by 2024 hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy, taking aim at the RNC chair for a losing track record since 2018, and NBC the host of the debate. You think the Democrats, and we've got Kristen Welker here, you think the Democrats would actually hire Greg Gutfeld to host a Democratic debate? Candidates were asked how, as president, they would respond to the Israel-Hamas war. I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers Hamas. 2024 contender Chris Christie says as president, he would prioritize intelligence to avoid further terrorist attacks. Israel and their intelligence community failed. They failed here and they failed the people of the state of Israel. And so we need to work closely and better together. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley says the issue needs to be addressed at its root. The former ambassador to the UN says terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah are only a threat because of Iran and its allies. And who is funding Iran right now? China is buying oil from Iran. Russia is getting drones and missiles from Iran. And there is an unholy alliance. We need to be clear-eyed. The last thing we need to do is to tell Israel what to do. The only thing we should be doing is supporting them and eliminating Hamas. An assessment supported by Senator Tim Scott. If you want to stop the 40-plus attacks on military personnel in the Middle East, you have to strike in Iran. If you want to make a difference, you cannot just continue to have strikes in Syria on warehouses. You actually have to cut off the head of the snake. DeSantis and Haley at one point sparred over how to best deal with the Chinese regime and other foreign threats to the U.S. We will go and end all formal trade relations with China until they stop murdering Americans from fentanyl, something Ron has yet to say that he's going to do. And then we modernize our military. When we strengthen our military, when we modernize it with the focus of cyber, artificial intelligence in space, when we make sure that we have the backs of our friends, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in Ukraine, and we should be arming Taiwan. In Florida? I banned China from buying land in this state, and we kicked out on our universities, and we kicked the Confucius Institutes out of our universities. We've recognized the threat, and we've acted swiftly and decisively. Haley and Ramaswamy continued their grudge match over TikTok and China. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters crapping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. The easy answer is actually to say that we're just going to ban one app. GOP voters in Iowa weighed in after the debate. Calm, controlled, and informative. Uh, character counts over name calling and four out of five of people on the stage I could see being in the White House. Foreign policy takes center stage. GOP stands in solidarity and support of Israel. A much more civil debate tonight. Trump won another one. The fourth GOP primary debate is set for December 6 in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And earlier I spoke to Raven Harrison, a political strategist and former congressional candidate, to discuss the details of last night's Republican debate. I asked her how Trump came out of it, despite his absence. Here's what she said. He came out the winner, hands down, Evelyn. I mean, the problem is, is that, you know, we've seen this. This is the third debate. This is the third one where President Trump was absent and his numbers are 10 times higher than the candidates vying for attention on there. So I think it was a it was a great strategy, but they're still going to make the emphasis on Trump, whether he's in person or not. So what about those that were there? So because many saying Haley won this debate, what do you think? 
uh, as a strategist, I was watching the debate and I disagree. I do not think Haley won the debate. I think that Vivek Ramaswamy absolutely just savaged the field. He came with specific barbs. He talked about Nikki Haley's daughter being on TikTok, but she's saying she's going to ban it talked about the absence of, of a plan to secure our southern border, but you want to send uh, more money. And the, the most ruthless of it was talking about how she was almost had zero net worth or was almost bankrupt before uh, she got into these military contracts and became a multimillionaire. And as we're in the middle of two wars right now, that was really, really detrimental. What about DeSantis here? He was trying to hold on to his position as a runner-up. How did he do? I think that he held his own. I didn't think he lost any ground. I don't really think he gained any ground. I think he should focus more. He's been telling us a lot about his record in Florida, which most people already know. What we need now is the actual verbs and the sentences. How are you going to actually end this war? How are you going to get things back on track? This is their moment to separate themselves from Trump and tell us verbs in the sentences. What are the numbers? What do you intend to do? And not these vague uh, campaign promises. And Trump's rally yesterday was on the same day GOP presidential candidates faced off for a third debate. Our reporters at the rally spoke to U.S. Senate candidate Carrie Lake and former Trump advisor Jason Miller about challenges Trump and other Republicans will face. Take a look. Republicans are going to have to learn how to talk about abortion. That's just the reality. President Trump has been saying that for months. And I think we saw last night, that's it. But Republicans have to start learning how to talk about it. Otherwise, some of these folks uh, could lose again. We're going to make sure, though, when it comes to ballot integrity, that nothing is going to get by us in 2024. The truth is, President Donald J. Trump has had our back the whole time. He's the one who secured the border. He's the one that gave us the most prosperous economy of my lifetime, and I've been around for a while. He's the one that had us uh, national security solid and strong. He had an energy policy that had us energy independent. He's the one that had us on a solid footing on a world stage and was pulling out of these endless wars, never starting a new war, and actually was bringing peace to the Middle East through the Abraham Accords. Yeah, former President Trump in everybody's mouth. And yeah, it, Republicans certainly have experienced some losses with abortion policies there. Well, I think one thing about abortion that's interesting is that Ohio voters actually voted to enshrine abortion access into the state's constitution, whereas Trump actually won Ohio in 2020. Mm, yeah. So we'll have to see. Exactly. Well, uh, we're heading to break for now. We look at a recent investigation into federal spending and billions of dollars spent on global LGBT programs. Find out where and what they included. A new bill in the House, it aims to limit foreign influence on U.S. campuses. Find out what the bill includes and which countries are of concern. Good to have you back. The U.S. carried out an airstrike on a weapons storage facility in eastern Syria Wednesday. According to an announcement from the Pentagon, the storage facility was linked to Iranian-backed groups. Two other facilities used by Iranian-backed groups were hit last month. Yesterday's airstrikes follow a month of almost daily attacks by Iranian proxies on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. U.S. officials said yesterday's attack did not result in casualties or any damage to infrastructure. An increase in attacks on U.S. forces in the Middle East has been expected in the wake of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. We are moving on to the next topic, which is billions of dollars are following from foreign adversaries to our college campuses, enabling information campaigns from regimes like Chinese Communist Party and the Hamas terrorist group. Now the House is taking action to shine a light on this pervasive foreign influence, and NTD's Melina Weiskup has a story. Education is a battleground for influence over the next generation of Americans, and unfortunately our foreign adversaries understand this very well. That's the heart of the issue that Republican Congresswoman Michelle Steele and Virginia Fox are tackling with their deterrent act. It would require colleges and its staff to report even $1 worth of gifts given to them by foreign countries of concern. We know that the Chinese Communist Party is not giving money to these institutions for nothing. May be trying to get sensitive national security information. They may just be wanting to influence the way students think. 
an issue that lawmakers on both sides acknowledge, leading to a bipartisan vote to advance the bill to the House floor. What China has been doing in terms of uh, intellectual property threat goes well beyond traditional espionage. The scale of threat is unprecedented in human history. To infiltrate their development programs or research programs, uh, particularly when it comes to advanced uh, military uh, research. But China's subversion is only one piece of the puzzle. College students are directly impacted today with rising anti-Semitism. A report finds that over 200 American colleges and universities received $13 billion from foreign regimes, which has helped fuel anti-Semitism on college campuses. And the colleges and universities raking in money from the Middle East appear to be ignoring Title VI while they allow Jewish students to be threatened and harassed on campus. And the House Judiciary Committee held a separate hearing to examine the rise in anti-Israel sentiment on college campuses and the violence that are directed at students who are supporting Israel. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. More than $4 billion of U.S. taxpayer money has been spent on global LGBT initiatives. That's according to an investigation by the Epic Times. In the last three years, the federal government issued more than 1,000 grants to fund LGBT-promoting projects worldwide. Entity's Kostemines tells us more. The scope of the U.S.-funded projects varies widely. According to the federal spending website, a list of payouts filtered by using the keyword LGBT included nearly 1,200 grants. It also included over 30 loans, as well as nine direct payments during the past three fiscal years of the over 450,000 overall grants issued. Filtering the list for grants that included the word transgender came up with nearly 600 entries. In that category, grants that paid out at least $1 million totaled nearly $500 million. The LGBT Life Center in Norfolk, Virginia, received a nearly $2 million grant in 2022 for plans to create a safe space for LGBT youth and adults to seek support and resources. The U.S. government also awarded half a million dollars to Serbian activist group Idzaji. It encourages diversity, equity and inclusion in Serbia's workplaces and business communities. An Armenian activist group, the Pink Human Rights Defender, also received a grant of $1 million to empower its local LGBT community. Grants may be in the form of direct payments to groups that are unrestricted or for a specific use, whereas federal loans can be repaid over long periods of time at low interest rates. Furthermore, in search, revealed an ongoing grant paid to Emory University. It's used to study the effects of cross-sex hormone use among U.S. and Thai transgender women. The project started in 2019 and will likely end next year. According to the government website, researchers will receive more than $3 million from the U.S. government to fund the project. Other smaller grants also focus on studies that examine equally tiny portions of the population. That's despite a recent poll that shows more than two-thirds of Americans want schools to teach basic educational skills, instead of gender ideology or sexual orientation instruction. Cost MNS, NTD News. And the Hollywood actors' strike is now over. A tentative deal was reached with major film and television studios. Earlier, we spoke with Entity Business host Don Ma to discuss yesterday's announcement from the actors' union. Uh, so late last night, uh, the union announced that uh, in a unanimous, unanimous vote, actually, the SAG-AFTRA TV Theatrical Committee approved a tentative agreement uh, with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. And this is bringing an end to the 118-day strike. And the strike officially ended at midnight, uh, according to the union. Um, so the agreement sets the stage for the roughly 160,000 actors uh, represented by SAG-AFTRA to return to work after they walked off the job back in July a couple months ago. Um, of course, uh, this deal is tentative right now, which means uh, the three-year contract uh, must be still approved by votes from the union's board and its members in the coming days. Uh, but, you know, at 118 days, uh, it was 
the longest movie and television strike in the union's 90-year history. So that's a win then for the unions. What is in the deal? Uh, well, the terms of the agreement uh, were not immediately released. SAG-AFTRA said the details would actually be made public after a meeting on Friday. Uh, that's uh, when board members will actually review the contract. But here are just some, uh, some of the issues that were on the table. Uh, it includes things like short-term compensation, uh, future royalty payments for TV and film performances, uh, along with, of course, uh, control over actors' images and likenesses generated with artificial intelligence. That was a big one. Um, but, you know, actors uh, should be able to soon return to movie sets where production uh, were paused. For movies like uh, Deadpool 3, uh, if you're looking forward to that, Gladiator 2, Wicked. Um, but, you know, the agreement also means uh, a return to sets for thousands of film crew members. We don't think about that uh, a lot, uh, who have left uh, with no work to do during the strikes. I think you made a good point. In 118 days, I think those pay paychecks coming in, being able to go back to work, that's worth a lot. It must be a huge relief. Yes, it certainly would be. And we've seen the resolution to the UAW strike and now the SAG actor strike. And I think it's important to point out just the importance of unions here in this context, because think about if they didn't have that bargaining power, what would happen, in other words, to their likeness if AI is able to steamroll them or different things that would happen in their pensions or paychecks right. in the auto industry. And on another note, not that it is important at all, but I'm excited for those movies to come out. Ah, yes. Yeah, on that note, uh, we're wrapping up our show here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.